Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Felicius, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Thank you, Selah, and good morning again. As you all might be catching on, we've introduced sort of a little liturgical cue for you that it's time to reserve our peace for next week and start listening to scripture this week. Uh, So you'll hear that uh, as your cue going forward instead of flashing the house lights or something like that. Uh, Well, we're continuing in our series in the book of 2 Timothy that we've been calling Follow the Pattern of Grace. Uh, looking at one of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote towards the very end of his life uh, to prepare his friend and ministry partner Timothy, as well as the church that he oversaw and the church that would come after them, for a time when Paul wouldn't be on the earth anymore. He wanted to prepare them to follow the life-changing pattern of grace that Paul had come to know through an intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're focusing particularly on Paul's emphasis on grace in this letter. There are so many things we could focus on, but that's our focus here because grace is so central to the Christian faith. It's core to who we are and to how we live as people who have been saved by God. So it's essential that we actually live it for ourselves and live it out into our community. So far, we've looked at the pattern of grace about how God moves towards us first about how he does that, not because there's anything special in us that he sees, but just because he chooses to. And he chooses to without changing his mind. He is always going to hold on to us. We also looked at what it means to be strengthened by that grace, that God actually expects our weakness, expects us to be limited, finite human beings who can't do it all, and he expects to meet us in our needs. Now we're going to start looking at what this pattern, this strength, does when it gets out. What it does in our lives, to our relationships, to our communities, how it shapes us. And we're going to start looking at the ways that when grace is not there, 
It hurts us. It unravels our community and our lives. So today we're focusing actually on a particular challenge to the community of grace uh, that our passage calls irreverent babble, or I think a little better translation is worldly talk, and we'll talk about what that means. It's, it's getting into quarreling and controversies, controversies, wow, I don't know why that word was hard to say today, uh, controversies as believers. Uh, these things were no less difficult for them than they are for us. It's really easy to get into fights especially if we go online. You want to go onto any social media platform, any messaging, especially if you go to a newspaper and read the comments, it is ugly, right? Quarreling, controversies are all around us. And they are no less difficult, I think, for, for that church than for us to recognize them and to actually step out of them when they're happening, when we're getting drawn into them. We need help, just like they needed help, to follow the pattern of grace so that we don't get drawn into these things and blinded by them as well. Through our text, I want us to see what wandering from God's grace through worldly talk looks like. That's our first point. And then secondly, what the path to restoration is. So what does it look like to wander away from God's grace in, quote, worldly talk? And then what does it look like to be brought back in the path of restoration? Before we get into those things, I'd invite you to, to bow your head one more time with me and let's pray and ask God to, to make his word living and active in our hearts. Let's pray. God, we do pray just that, that your word would be living and active, that it would jump off the page, that it would truly be your word, which is powerful, which is creative and recreative, which, which is redemptive and renewing. Would that be so for us this morning, God? Would you challenge us where we need to be challenged? Would you meet us by your strength? We know we can call on your grace for strength. We know that you pursue us, that it's not about us earning our way in, but just responding to who you are out of grace. So meet us where we need repair. Call us home as a community. Fix us where we are broken. Let us be humble in heart that we might be open to hearing what you have to say because we know you love us and you want us to thrive. So would you cause us to thrive this morning? In your son's name and by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, if you have a Bible app, feel free to keep that open. We're going to be bouncing around through the text a little bit this morning. Now, we're going to start in verse 14 to look at wandering from God's grace. Now, Paul points out a danger to the community of grace in verse 14. Uh, he tells Timothy to charge them, that's the church that Timothy was over, not to quarrel about words. Uh, it's a rare word that those three words are trying to translate there. It's something that actually doesn't show up anywhere else or very rarely in the New Testament. And it's something that means more literally like wage a war of words. Don't wage a war of words. So he's not saying don't get into little bickering arguments. Don't just have a little tiff. This is talking about, about divisions about real conflict between people, between groups of people within the church. And he elaborates in verse 16 to say not just don't get into these kind of conflicts, but he says avoid irreverent babble. As we said, what's maybe better translated worldly or empty talk. He says that these things... This kind of conflict, this kind of division between Christians, this kind of, of quarreling and worldly empty talk is out of line with the pattern of grace. It doesn't fit. It unravels the pattern. It doesn't deepen and enrich and strengthen the pattern. 
So what's worldly talk? And why is it that worldly talk and those who practice it, Paul names names here. Paul was not afraid at times to say, these people have it wrong. He said, Hymenaeus and Philetus have it wrong. And we'll talk about them more later. But what is worldly talk and why is it that, that it and those who practice it are out of line with grace? Why does it not fit? Why is it really a problem that Paul needs to address? Why isn't it something that he can just say, yeah, that's not great, but it's not a big deal? Why does Paul include this in his letter? Letters, I think I've said this before, were not like emails. You didn't just fire off a thousand for whatever you wanted to say. You didn't just tweet. This would take time and money to write a letter in the ancient world. This was important. Something about this is important. So what is it? What's going on here? First, what is the worldly talk that Paul's referencing in verse 16? As one commentator, William Mounts, explains, the best way to understand what Paul's getting at here is to see this as describing talk that is in direct opposition to God. I want us to see worldly talk, the irreverent babble that he's talking about here, is, is speech, conversation that is directly in opposition. It's against God and the things of God. That still maybe doesn't feel like it helps us, right? That still feels kind of nebulous. Like, well, what's in opposition to God? Well, the very root of opposition to God is self-centeredness. Me being the center of life and of universe and of knowledge and decision-making and authority and power, that is direct opposition to God who alone is the center of life and power and authority and decision-making in the universe. That's what worldly talk looks like. It looks like self-centeredness. The conversation of the world has no center with God at the, with God at the center. It only has the self at the center. It's a way of speaking or thinking that revolves around you, around your life your desires, your plans, the things that you and I want. And it has those not just as kind of things that are orbiting like a satellite, it has them as the sun, as the very center of our spiritual solar system. It makes me into the sun instead of God. The earth is a great planet. It's a terrible sun. You and I are great as people. We are terrible as God. Worldly talk, empty talk, puts us at the center, makes us self-centered. It says things like, if you go to verse 18, the resurrection has already happened. It says things that damage the hope of others, whether or not it's good for them, that makes them feel afraid when they don't need to be, not because that's what God said. Right In verse 19, it says, God's firm foundation stands. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is decided, it is done, you are spared from your sin. It says, the Lord knows those who are his. In in scriptural, biblical language, knowing means remembering, it means an intimate connection, it means a I'm not going to forget you kind of knowing. God didn't say I'm going to get some of you, but I'm going to forget some of you. It says this not because this is what God has said or what because it is promised, it says things just because that's what you think. That me as an expert, that me in my opinion, me in my experience, me in the way that I like to see the world, this is the way that I see it. I've gathered the data, I've gathered the information from what I can see, this is what must have happened. 
We do things like this all the time. This wasn't just these people. You and I, I do things like this all the time. This is what I see. This is what I can understand. This is what I think is happening. And then I just say that because I feel like I have figured it out. I have put myself at the center. Anyone else done that? Just me? All right, I'm a, I'll confess for you all corporately and say that we do that. I'm sure that I'm not the only one that does that at times. And this is why this worldly talk is out of line with grace and needs correction because worldly talk and controversies, division and conflict, when we get into them in matters of the faith, make faith about you, about me. It makes it about our searching out God and his mysteries rather than God searching out us. Worldly talk makes faith about you even though it's talking about God. It puts us at the center. It makes it about our powers of observation instead of God's power of salvation. This is what is sin at its core. Life centered on you. Talking about anything, misshaping, misusing anything to make it orbit around me. It doesn't matter if you're talking about faith. We can still do it the wrong way. We can make it about us instead of about God. Paul says, that's not how grace works. That's wandering from grace. Me at the center, me having to be the authority, having to be the one that's right, having to be the one that always has it figured out or that's never wrong about faith. They couldn't have made a mistake. They couldn't have misjudged God in some way. They couldn't have misjudged someone else in some way. That is wandering from grace. Because grace centers on God. His plans his desires, his ways, his abilities, not yours, not mine, certainly. It centered us on his acceptance, his approval, his power to save, not mine. It centers on him, not me. It's settled and finished and centered on the work of Jesus Christ, on what he has already done. It's already over. Salvation is already over. It's already done. There's not something I need to do. God is going to stand up for his own word. He's going to stand up for his people. He is going to make sure that the truth of the gospel continues to get out. Not that we don't stand up and speak up when these things need to be said, but we don't need to be those that get sucked into a war of words with other people over them because then we slowly start to orbit, not around God, but around ourselves around the idea that I'm the one that has to do this. I've got to be the one that stands in instead of God is the one that did it when I didn't even know he was moving. It's a very subtle temptation to make faith and life about ourselves. That's why Paul can say it's like gangrene spreading. It's something that just keeps moving, maybe even whether you're paying attention to it or not. We have to watch out for these things. Paul says, rather than wandering in self-centered worldly talk, which is dangerous to us, that the community of grace should be centered on God and not ourselves. And we do that by letting our conversations and our approach to others be marked by humility. By humility. Look at verses 20 and 21. 
Paul tells Timothy, through an extended metaphor there, to be like a vessel. Right? That, that would mean something for household use, something that you could get uh, at Walmart, at Pottery Barn, right? like a vase, uh, a container, a household tool, something made for use by someone else. Paul doesn't say become a good master. He doesn't say become a good servant. He says be an honorable, holy vessel to be a tool in someone else's use, to be an honorable one rather than a dishonorable one. Those are the choices, not to be a master, not to be a servant, but to be either an honorable or a dishonorable vessel. He's saying you, you, you can be one of these two things. That's pretty humbling. You're not going to be the master. You're not even going to be the servant. You are going to be the thing that gets picked up, used, and put back down. That's a posture of humility. Do you see the humility of what Paul's getting at here? Humility is the antidote to self-centeredness, to thinking that I am the Almighty, that I am always right, that I have to be right, that I, that I have the power and the ability to figure all these things out by myself, that I can't get it wrong. Humility says, I am here for the use of another. And it doesn't depend on me. And I'm happy if I can be part of this. But this is not about me. I am here for others. Humility is the antidote to our wandering away from grace into this gangrene of self-centeredness, that spreading disease that is always going to creep up on us. Paul's saying to shun it, to avoid it, look out for this. And Paul says that not just to those people. He wasn't writing to Hymenaeus and Philetus. He's writing to Timothy and to the church, to those people that should be following after God, that should have God at the center of their lives. Paul's saying, you and me, watch out. This can happen to us. This can happen to you, no matter how mature you are in the faith, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how much you're reading your Bible or what kind of quiet times you're doing. Paul's saying, this can happen to you. Don't let it happen to you. Shun these things. Avoid them. Don't get sucked into controversies and arguing over who is right and just let God be right. Because when we don't do that, again, it just makes it about us. We're the ones who are the saviors riding in to fix it, rather than being convinced of God and his firm foundation standing over us and taking care of it all. We thrive as a community of grace, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we live as vessels, as humble people, for the honorable use of God, for the pouring out of a legacy of grace, as we talked about some weeks ago, when we just live in humility, when we are marked by conversations that show that we're not the center and we don't have to be the center. We don't have to be the center of knowledge and influence. We don't have to have the most likes on our social media posts. We don't have to be the best person at our job. We don't have to be the top of our class. We don't have to be the center. Isn't there relief in that? 
Don't we do better with one another when we don't have to be the center? Aren't our relationships better when we don't have to be the center? Just try that for one day this week, maybe even an hour this week, right? Try not to be the center. When something is really pushing on you and someone is frustrating you, try for a moment not to be the center. When I am not the center, when I can just be a vessel, it's easier for things in life to not go my way. When it doesn't orbit around me, and I'm just one of many moons around Jupiter, right? I'm not the sun, I'm not even Earth, I am a lifeless little thing floating around in space. It is a lot easier for things not to go our way, to be a community that continues to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, on the one who is the sun, and not to have this kind of eclipse where we make ourselves stand in his place. But how do we come back then from self-centeredness when we wander. And we're all prone to wander. Again, Paul's writing to all of us, to even the all-star Christians. How do we come back when we don't stay centered on God? That brings us to our second point. I only have two points today, so y'all can feel a relief. We are nearing the end. We're pulling in. You can put your tray tables back down. We're ready to go. The path to restoration comes out in verses 24 to 26. Verse 24, Paul says, The Lord's servant must not be caught up in the fighting and controversy that comes from self-centeredness, but to be kind to everyone, patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. Kind, patient, gentle. It's kindness, patience, and gentleness that bring others back, that bring us back. That's the path of restoration from self-centeredness, from being captive, as Paul says, to the snare of the devil, which is, again, to make yourself the center of the universe. That's what sin is. That's what the devil is tempting you to do when you are being tempted to sin, to be the center. Paul says, patience, kindness, and gentleness are how we come home. That's the path for real people. Again, he names real people that were not doing this, that were making themselves the center and walking away from God, saying whatever they thought, whenever they wanted, Hymenaeus and Philetus, that this is a path for restoration even, perhaps, for them. This is how real people that make real mistakes, that blow it, come home. People with a name like you and I, people with a history like you and I, this is how we come home. Not sort of fairy tale people, not those special Christians out there that don't need that much help. Real people that mess up and screw up come home this way. Kindness, patience, gentleness. That, I think, should surprise us, that that's the way home. First of all, because our culture doesn't really have a category for restoring our opponents. Our approach to opponents, to those that don't agree with us right now, is to make sure that you don't have power to shut you up or to get rid of you from my life, to just make sure you're not there. We don't really have a category for restoration, for getting on the other side of conflict that doesn't leave one person completely broken down and the other person in this domineering status. But the second reason I think this should surprise us is because we anticipate, maybe at a more intuitive level, that it's actually strength that restores us. 
We don't feel like, if you were to ask many people, I think in our culture, that gentleness, patience, and kindness are the way that you restore people that are really in strong disagreement with you. If we asked them, we'd probably hear a lot of things about, well, staying the course, investing more in what you know to be true, being more disciplined, having more determination, having the better arguments. That's how you win people over. That's how you make your point. That's how you get on top of these things and overcome obstacles. The scripture says, ah, that's not what does it. <laughs> that's not what works. Patience, gentleness, and kindness are actually exactly what breaks down hard hearts, what makes us come to our senses, as Paul says in the text, to wake up. These things are the smelling salts that bring us back from our stupor, that bring us back to God, that restore us from our captivity to self-centeredness, gentleness, kindness, patience. If y'all don't hear me say anything else today, walk away with those three words. Kids, if you're writing and taking notes, gentleness, patience, kindness, those things are the path to restoration when the me monster comes out, when it becomes all about me. We are not led home by a head-on attack on self-centeredness. We get defensive. We build the walls higher when someone just comes to light us up to get in our face, to tell us all the ways that we are wrong, the walls go up. That's not how the walls come down. That's not what Scripture says. And it's actually not just Scripture's idea, but it shows up in many places. It shows up, maybe infamously for many of us. And I told uh, one of our sisters, G, who isn't here this morning, that I was going to talk about one of her favorite plays. So we're going to talk about a play in a book, Les Mis. It shows up several times in this story that, that stubbornness, that opposition is not broken down by head-on attacks. What melts the hard heart of Jean Valjean in the early part of this story? After he has been toughened by years, decades of cruelty and oppression as a slave in a prison. What makes him start trusting people again, start being kind to people again? It's the gentleness and kindness of the bishop. And when Jean Valjean had stolen his silver and gets caught and gets brought back, gives him more than he stole to keep this man battered by brutality out of prison. And as he says with his own words, to buy back his soul. How does he get changed in the story? With gentleness. That's what changed him. And what utterly breaks the antithesis of kindness in this story, Inspector Javert, it's the kindness of Jean Valjean, the man that he had been pursuing, the man that he only understood as the worst of society, as scum, as someone who would sooner kill someone than help them. It's being shown kindness by that man at the barricade when he could have just shot him and been done with him. He unties him, he sets him free, and he tells him even, Jean Valjean does, where he lives so that he can come find him and arrest him later if he happens to survive this ordeal at the barricade. He would rather suffer himself than make someone else suffer. He would have rather restored and protect another life than protect his own. That's what just breaks Javert in the story. 
That's what his mind just can't handle and can't get around, how the scum of the earth would show him not strength, not opposition, not shoot him, but kindness, mercy. It was not strength that changed those two men, not brute strength at least. It was gentleness and kindness. So too, it's the gentleness of God's grace applied patiently by the Holy Spirit in our lives and the lives of others that makes space for us to be restored, to have that moment of coming home like Valjean, where we maybe start trusting others, where we maybe can take ourselves out of the center, to maybe acknowledge for the first time that, yeah, I can't do all this. I can't keep going like this. I can't keep being the person that never gets anything except an A in my classes. I can't keep being the person that doesn't do anything except get all the decisions right at work, that, makes, that doesn't make a mistake. I can't keep being the parent that doesn't make mistakes with my children in front of other people. I can't keep being the sibling that doesn't actually do all the things that maybe I should do as a sibling. I can't keep being the friend, the roommate, whatever it is that just, that doesn't have weaknesses. I can't do this alone. I need someone stronger than me. I need someone to pursue me. I need someone to carry me home. And the good news is that's exactly how Jesus leads you and I home today. With gentleness and kindness. We deserved one thing in sin. We deserved guilty punishment for making ourselves the center, for tearing down the walls that we might be at the center, that we might sit on the throne, that we might break everything that God made beautiful because we thought we could do it better. We deserve to have that wrong made right. And yet Jesus gave of himself for us. Not when we were at our best even to the point of giving up his whole life for us on the cross. It's unfathomable, first of all, that he would give of himself to finite creatures. Could you imagine you and I ordering your whole next three years, just say, around an ant? You find one ant on the sidewalk, and you do everything. You follow this ant around. You make sure it has what it needs. You give it leaves and water. Could you imagine? That's crazy. Right? You would not do that. Imagine so much greater is the distance between God and us than a human and an ant. And Jesus pours out his life for us, even going beyond just following us around and giving us what we need. But to die in our place, imagine the kindness of God and Jesus Christ at the cross. See the cross as his unfathomable kindness to those who did not deserve it, to those who were opponents, to those who were exactly what Paul is talking about in this passage. It was the gentleness of Jesus, always welcoming stubborn, hard-hearted people like you and me back, people like Peter, back into relationship with him after we've blown it, after we put our foot in our mouth time and again. It was the gentleness of Jesus that was always welcoming those and still welcomes those who know the depths of their own need, even when others pass them by or push them off. It was the gentleness of Jesus given to the Samaritan woman with a broken past 
in John 4. It was the gentleness of Jesus given to the leprous man, kneeling and pleading for healing in Mark 1. It was the gentleness of Jesus given to the woman who bled for 12 years, suffering in shame in Mark 5. It was the gentleness of Jesus given to the man with the withered hand in Matthew 12, who they didn't want him to heal. It was the blind beggar crying out for sight in Luke 18 that they didn't want him to hear. It was the man born blind in John 9 who they didn't want to speak. It was the sinful woman wiping Jesus' feet in Luke 7 who they didn't want him to see. It was the crowds harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd in Matthew 9 that he couldn't help but love. And it's the sinner that received his gentleness. It's the people sitting next to you this morning the family and friends that have gone on to glory, that are recipients of the gentleness of Jesus to those who know their need. See the gentleness of God's grace, the kindness of God's grace embodied, living out in Jesus Christ. That's what restores us, that gives us the real hunger for who he is, seeing his gentleness towards us. And it's also what draws others back. In verses 25 and 26, Paul's talking about reclaiming those who are leaving Christian community. This is how we fight for the life of our friends and family and if you're not a Christian this morning, this is how we fight for your life and vitality, is not by convincing you that we're right and you're wrong, not by showing you all the proofs, but by showing you gentleness, kindness, and patience. This, Christians, is how we fight for grace. Not at the ballot box, not in power, not in overcoming this, not in all these things with gentleness, patience, and kindness. That was the essence of the civil rights movement. Nonviolence, gentleness towards enemies when someone slapped you, patience when they beat you again and again and put you in prison, kindness towards those who didn't deserve kindness for what they were doing. This is the way that difficult things get changed in our world. Gentleness, patience, kindness. But how then do we actually live into that as I close in some application, in the times where you are getting hit in the face, maybe just with words, maybe literally, how do we start living into gentleness and kindness for all the divisions and conflict in our own community and the community around us instead of getting sucked in back to this vacuum of self-centeredness where we are the center of everything? I want to encourage you just to do two things this week as you're able to practice and to prize, to start practicing first gentleness now, right? To practice it in the small ways. You don't go to the Olympics because one day you signed up and the next day you are ready to long jump 30 feet. That's not how it happens. We train. You don't all of a sudden beat Usain Bolt. You practice, you run faster, you do the things that you need to do. The same is true in the spiritual life. We don't grow as Christians overnight. We need to have a growth mindset where it's okay for us not to be good at this yet. 
but we're going to learn how to do that by practicing. And I want to encourage you to find some practical small moment where you feel like, I can show gentleness or kindness or patience right now. I can do that right now. What I'd prefer to do is make this about me and be frustrated with you. But what I'm going to do is show gentleness, patience, and kindness. Just find those little opportunities when you're driving around the city. There are plenty of opportunities to find micro moments to practice gentleness and kindness, to use all of your fingers to wave someone in instead of just one finger, right? To practice gentleness and kindness while we're at work. When an email comes through that you think, why? Why would you send that? Why would you do that? Practice gentleness and kindness in these small moments that when we have the bigger test, we are better able to rely on the muscles, the spiritual muscles that we have built up to have gentleness and kindness be at work. Find those moments on social media, when you're on the phone with the doctor and you have been waiting for 30 minutes to get an answer about a simple prescription refill. Practice gentleness and kindness. What if we as a Christian community were marked by gentleness and kindness in the way that we treated others? What if there was something different that people recognized about people who go to CTK in the way that we treat them at the stores around us here? What would it be like? if we had a reputation of gentleness and kindness. And we do that, I think, by prizing gentleness and kindness. Vision drives action. What we desire, what we want, shapes the habits we have, who we are. So start looking for gentleness as you would look for something that you really prize. Like you look for a great vacation spot. Like you look for someone that you really want to date like you look for the next big opportunity in your career, start looking for gentleness that way. Where can I find it? Where can I see it? Ask one another. Ask your friends. Ask the people in your community group. Ask your, your parents or your kids, whoever it may be. Ask them, where have you seen the gentleness of God in your life? Could you tell me about that? I would love to hear a time that you felt like God was just really gentle with you, kind, Look for it where it's already existing. Turn over the rocks in our lives. All we do so much is just doom scrolling and scrolling through social media and we're not really looking for gentleness or kindness there. What if we started scrolling somewhat, so to speak, through the lives of our friends and family looking for gentleness, looking for kindness. Start prizing it. Let it be something that we sought out, a language that we speak instead of the language of hostility and conflict. Let's pray. I want to leave you a little space this morning, change it up a little. I want you to have some time to pray and reflect on what we've just heard. I'm going to leave space for you to thank God for his gentleness and kindness, to, to confess maybe some of the ways that you've been self-centered and stuck on you, to ask God to release you from that. But I'm going to give you just maybe a minute to pray and talk to God about these things that we've just discussed. Let's pray.
God, would you hear these prayers and empower us to do these things by your life-changing, life-giving grace. In your name we pray. Amen.